This is a clean uh, copper plate uh, that I'm going to be enameling. And I'm going to be enameling from start to finish so you can see the whole thing, the whole process from beginning to end. Taking a couple of shortcuts along the way. The first thing I do, I, I have uh, the enamel all laid out here, the different colors I'm going to be using. This is a glue solution and I can I can use the brush to put the glue solution on, sift the enamel over the glue solution. Voila, there it is. The glue holds it in place. And then to make it a bit more interesting, uh, visually, I'm going to use a second color, second application. Brush the glue on. Sift the second color on. And it's ready to go. The Beatles words are very much of their time. I will present as much context for their statements as I can, but there will be language and views expressed that may not fit with modern sensitivities. But this is 1969. Until they invent the time machine, these words remain unchangeable. Don't operate under these conditions, boy. You know, we're coming out. It's like, it's like that we're like, we're striking. That's what it is, it's like a strike. And that's what we're going through now, really, is that we've got to readjust to each other. You know, I've got so many songs, but I've got, like, my quantum of tunes for the next ten years or albums. I won't lie, I'm not too good. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, and welcome to Winter of Discontent, the podcast that takes a deep dive into the recordings of the Beatles sessions for the Get Back Project. My name is Nick. Join me now as we embark on this epic journey together. Episode 7 Another podcast recommendation. Obviously, I'm going to run out of these very quickly. Nothing Is Real, hosted by Stephen Cockroft and Jason Carty, is a Beatles podcast that's carefully researched and informative without being too reverential. And it's delivered with a lot of warmth and good humour. Well worth a listen. As I record this, it's a week before Christmas 2020, and yes, I'm trying to build up a nice healthy buffer of episodes before the podcast starts in 2021. They say that most podcast series run out of steam by the sixth instalment. I feel we're just getting started. The Beatles too feel like they're just getting started on their new project. As usual, if you want to follow the story in sequence, please start at episode 1. Otherwise, here is a recap of episode 6. It's now the afternoon of January 2nd, 1969. John and George don't appear to be present. At some point around lunchtime, they had a meeting with the Hare Krishna devotee Sayamasundra, although in his account, Paul is also present. In the next bit of tape recording, we can hear Paul discussing cigars and liquor and how expensive they are with director Michael Lindsay Hogg. 
At the same time, the Nagra machine captures a conversation between a petulant Ringo and producer Dennis Hodell, who skillfully massages the drummer come actor's ego and attempts to sell his production of The Magic Christian to one of its leading men. During this conversation, we learn that Ringo hasn't bothered to read any of the three script drafts that he's been sent. But Dennis is unperturbed and even suggests Ringo come up with some ideas himself, if he feels like it. We also learn that this soundstage, which I believe is stage three, is the only one not having construction work. The production as a whole has to be put back to the 24th of January, allowing the Beatles three weeks to write, rehearse and perform their concert before Ringo is required on set. As we know, Dennis would have to further delay the filming because the Beatles project overran to the 31st of January. It's an indication of the power and influence the Beatles still held that they could delay the production of a major movie for nearly a month. John and George announced their return with some noisy guitar notes. The band resumed rehearsal of I've Got a Feeling. Some time seems to have elapsed and George and Ringo have questions about the arrangement, which they have already forgotten. As ever, Paul is very prescriptive about what he wants the guitars, particularly George's, to play. And as will become apparent throughout these sessions, George isn't following Paul's suggestions. He is, however, working out his own ideas painstakingly as they go over and over the song. It's interesting to discover that most of the arrangement of this song is now established. Ringo's drum pattern has evolved naturally. John's guitar part is completely there, as it would be on the final recording. Short of a few embellishments, Paul's bass part is mostly there. The song's structure is pretty much as it would be on the finished recording. The main purpose of the lengthy rehearsals of this song seems to be to let George work out his guitar part. And although the performance on the rooftop at Apple four weeks from now is some of George's most exciting and fiery playing, at this point in these sessions, George seems uninspired, lacklustre even. This really is part of the way George works and will be the cause of some friction in later sessions. There is an article on pitchfork.com called The Notes You Never Hear, The Metaphysical Loneliness of George Harrison. In it, George's son Danny recalls, My father once said to me, I play the notes you never hear. He focused on touch and control, partly because he never thought he was any good really. He knew he was good at smaller things, not hitting any off notes, not making strings buzz, not playing anything that would jar you. Everyone else has played all the other bullshit, he would say. I just play what's left. Olivia Harrison too recalled her husband writing at home, one ear cocked to the side, endlessly working and reworking chord formations. His lead guitar was never a lead in a traditional sense. It is just one voice in an imaginary choir, and that's a perfect way to sum up George's approach. By the time I've got a feeling was taped on that windswept rooftop, George's guitar was weaving a thread across John and Ringo's rhythm, interlacing with Billy Preston's keyboard and enhancing Paul's bass. But right now, Paul can only attempt to sing parts repeatedly at George, which George has no intention of copying. He's on a quest for those notes you never hear. After several run-throughs, George is keen to find a way to capture what they've learnt so far. Maybe on tape, but at the very least on paper. Here we find that it's personal assistant Mal Evans' duty to note down lyrics. 
At one point, we hear him clumsily putting together a music stand for Paul, which Paul quickly declines. Eventually, George suggests that they move on to something else. But John is still enamoured with this co-composition and wants to rehearse it more. Even when Paul suggests that they've done enough rehearsal for now on this song, John wants to do just one more, but then concedes. And with that, today's work on I've Got a Feeling comes to an end. The song isn't in bad shape, so it's a promising start. We'll now rejoin the Beatles as they return to working on John's Don't Let Me Down. It's alright, I heard it before, you can hear it. Paul has had an opportunity to hear back some of the Nagra recordings tape so far. He's a sound the sound recordist Peter Sutton, who we've discussed previously, is aided by boom operators Roy Mingay and Ken Reynolds. Ken went on to work on a variety of iconic British TV shows, including Coronation Street, World in Action, and The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. John playing a guitar part that would eventually become the song Sun King. This tiny fragment appears on the bonus disc of the Let It Be Naked album. The guitar John is seen with throughout these sessions is his 1965 model ES230TD Epiphone Casino. This guitar had been his main instrument since the spring of 1966 when he and George acquired matching models for use in the studio and on tour. John's model differed from George's in that it sported a fixed trapeze tailpiece. George's was equipped with a Bixby vibrato unit. John's is also distinguished by having a black rubber ring around the pickup selector switch. They weren't the first Beatles to use this model of guitar. They were in fact inspired to switch from their ubiquitous Rickenbacker and Gresh guitars by Paul who had bought a 1962 model over a year prior. Apparently on the recommendation of British blues pioneer John Mayle. It is possible that the Beatles were also inspired to use this guitar by Keith Richard of the Rolling Stones, who used a casino during that band's early recordings and live shows. John, ever restless, chose to modify his guitar, much as he had done his first Rickenbacker, starting with a psychedelic-inspired swirling pattern on the back and neck in what was probably white spray paint from a can during the Sgt Pepper sessions. When the Beatles travelled to India in early 1968, both John and George's Epiphones were sanded back to the bare wood. It's not known who did this, but Sam Lee, a Soho-based guitar repair shop owner that the Beatles are known to have used, is the most likely candidate. Handiwork certainly wasn't something John was known for, so it's hard to imagine him painstakingly stripping the finish and then applying two coats of nitrocellulose. And since this also seems to be the time that the tuning machines were changed, it does seem to indicate that this was a professional job. Perhaps evidence of John's level of craftsmanship on his own guitar are things like the fixing screw for the guitar scratch plate remaining even after the plastic part had long been removed, and the presence of a solitary black control knob alongside three gold ones, evidently a replacement for one that had fallen off at some point. John played this guitar up until around 1972. It was versatile, comfortable and lightweight, 
weighing only five and a half pounds. Compare this to George's hefty 14 pound Rosewood Telecaster guitar used on the rooftop concert later this month. Instructing Mal or Kevin to remove the lid of the Bluthner Model 1 Grand Piano. The Model 1 is the largest model the company produces at 9 foot 2 inches long. The prominent Bluthner logo on the side of the piano I had always presumed was put there as some kind of deal, perhaps getting the company free advertising in exchange for use of the piano. However, according to Bluthner's website, this piano was already the property of EMI Studios and was on loan from them. The same piano is used in the sessions at Savile Row later in the month. George asks, Should we all sing that bit? Meaning the chorus. George, perhaps goading Paul, asks for ideas from him immediately. John, forgetting the key he was singing the song in this morning, Paul commented recently when asked, how did you make your song so memorable? He said, because we had to remember them. It is when you're trying to sing over an album. <coughs> well, John, I, think, I think at home I was thinking, don't let me down. Probably was, don't let me down. Yeah, because the rest of it. Yes, yes. yes. So, you can, so you can, don't let me down. Yeah. So we don't gone through a bit, have we? John realizing he has to pause to sing the pickup of each verse because it's in five four time. It will take them a while to grasp this. When John plays along, he adds syllables to the pickup to make it fit the common four four time. John then improvises a guitar part, suggesting where a solo should go. Oh, well, I actually have no order for it at all, you know, for all the bits, so... i just got to see which should come where. You know. It seems strange that John is less confident presenting this song now Paul has arrived. He had a much clearer idea of how the song should go only a few hours earlier. There's a little bit of tinkering on the piano in the background. Presumably the lid has now been removed. Paul seems to hear this song as a kind of 1950s doo-wop style tune. He'll pursue this a little more later. So, they look for an appropriate style for harmonies. Natural this morning, really. John comments how easily George harmonised this morning. Paul, feeling the song needs piano. John, not sure about the logistics of that. Yeah, but how do we do that? Uh, one of us play bass, two 
player or a pianist. You know. I think if uh, we have somebody do it, maybe you can play an organ. Because then it just oh, leaves yeah. one guitar, doesn't it? The second song rehearsed and the Beatles are already discussing augmenting the band. Paul uses John's song Julia as an example of how effective John can be on his own on guitar. John feels exposed being the only guitar if George switches the bass. Are you gonna get on piano John getting irritated with Paul. Paul perhaps stung by comments from John which he alluded to in later interviews that you could never get Paul off the piano. Yeah, I like the idea of piano is just to, to make it, you know, it does do that. Limited. Yeah, see, um... See, I think we should just sort of learn them. And then I see what, what's needed. There's, there's a thing of what we are. Uh, yeah. But it's just that I've had uh, all, just kept Ian and him doing all them. referring here to earlier Beatles recordings that were less elaborate in their arrangements. But, but all right, so uh, you have... have a bit of both, you know. Yeah, right. But to, somehow to get that thing of, don't let me down. rejecting going on piano then throws it back at John to make a decision giving John all the responsibility well I'll do it how I'm doing it it'll be the same till I can think of something if I want to repeat any because I've, I've not sung it that enough John seems to have lost confidence in the song so Paul encourages him pointing out his favourite bits Maybe, but like first time it's the we're together. Yeah. It's a love that lasts forever. 
try it. No, I don't. I think I'll lay off the George offers to play bass. Paul would rather not play piano just yet. I'll get on it for numbers, I definitely think. I just sort of heard this is one of those. Uh, no one loved me like you do. Ching, 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 ching. Then uh, it's a love that lasts forever. Ching, ching, John suggested Nicky Hopkins, who played on Revolution. George suggests a double bass, which Paul acknowledges unenthusiastically. Paul doesn't like the idea of an augmented band on stage. Well, it's like playing it to, and then if, it, if we need something, yes. if we still think, oh, that'll be nice, just right. a bit of piano. Or if it develops that nothing need be done on guitar except for rhythm. Oh. Then we say, well, oh, fuck that, two rhythms, right, one piano. Another Beatles in joke. In 1959, when the quarrymen were down to a three-piece and calling themselves J-Page 3, they would tell bar owners and club hosts that they didn't have a drummer because the rhythm's in the guitars. Paul asks Mal Evans to write the words down. That's Ringo accompanying on tambourine. We know this because it carries on when Paul is talking. Twice at the beginning. But do you know like when I you bring that? I'm in love, because I'm oh. in love for the first time. I don't think that sounds like a middle eight or whatever. Oh, yeah. okay. It doesn't sound. But I so scrap that, except use that somewhere near the end. Paul can already see the descending section to Don't Let Me Down as superfluous. John wants to leave it till the end. Well, that when used to go after the. John dictating lyrics to Mal. Yeah, but no, except, skip that little yes. interlude. So I'll do it right Like 
modern sense of making yes, sense yes. of them all. Yeah. Yeah. Well, One. The tape cuts are talking about some of the songs acquired when Northern Song successfully bid on the music catalogue of Lawrence Wright, known as the Daddy of Timpan Alley. This was an area of investment that Paul would use to greatly enhance his fortune in the 70s. George asking Ringo to pop into his house to pick up a copy of Jackie Lomax's album, By the Sounds of Things. Mal asking Kevin for a bin or a big ashtray. Ringo and George now discussing the enamelling kit that they've both been playing with. They'd gifted the other Beatles with these at Christmas, but Paul seems to have not seen his. Ringo refers to something enamel this morning, which I presumed was part of his drum kit, but this was clearly wrong. Also worth noting, this is the first audible appearance of Yoko. Yoko Ono, of course, should need no introduction, but her journey from artist seeking a patron to active collaborator with and permanent companion of John Lennon up to this point warrants some examination. Research for this section comes from Chip Maddinger's peerless work, Lennonology, Volume 1, Strange Days Indeed. On October 7th, 1966, four days after returning from Spain where he had been filming his part in Dick Lester's movie How I Won the War, John Lennon visited the Indica Gallery in Mason's Yard, Westminster at the invitation of John Dunbar. It was Dunbar that introduced the 33-year-old Japanese artist to the millionaire Beatle. It probably wasn't the love at first sight that John would later portray, but they must have made an impression upon each other. They shared the same social circle, but their paths didn't seem to cross again until September 25th, 
1967 during sessions for Paul's song The Fool on the Hill and John and Yoko were captured in conversation. She wasn't the only guest that day, being part of a contingent featuring Japanese journalist Rumiko Hoshika and Kohasebi. It is around this time that John's interest was piqued, in particular by his subscription to an art piece called 13 Days Do-It-Yourself Dance Festival, where postcards bearing simple instructions were delivered each day. John was by turns intrigued or upset by each of these as they arrived. Whatever reaction he had, he was gradually feeling drawn to the enigmatic artist. By October 1967, Yoko had convinced John to sponsor her exhibition Half a Wind, and by way of a thank you, suggested he contribute a piece of his own. At this point, Yoko began to see John as an artist on her wavelength. Their work kept them apart for most of the end of 1967. Yoko and her then-husband Tony Cox were in Paris. However, on January 8, 1968, only a year before these get-back sessions, Yoko sent a postcard to John, teasingly inscribed, Paris is an L-shaped arrow. My direction is... The next known meeting between the two was on February 11, 1968, when the Beatles were filmed recording John's Hey Bulldog. It's believed that this was the first time that John made a pass at Yoko. He was on this occasion rebuffed, but Yoko began to realise at this point that her feelings for the now luxuriantly mutton-chopped beetle were deepening. They began to spend hours on the phone together, barely talking. When the Beatles made their scheduled pilgrimage to Rishikesh, India on the 15th of February, Yoko stayed in London. John had intended to invite her, but in the end lacked the courage to carry on an affair under his wife Cynthia's nose. John later recalled that while he was in India, Yoko was writing to him every day. This may be an exaggeration. John was subscribing to a number of Yoko's Fluxus event scores, which, like the dance festival, sent daily instruction cards to perform mundane acts. On April 20th, after returning from India, and returning to LSD, John gushed to wife Cynthia, We've got to have lots more children. We've got to have a big family around us. Cynthia's unsettled response was to suggest that Yoko was the woman for him. Since meeting the artist socially, Cynthia had become all too aware of the chemistry between her husband and Yoko. She later stated, I felt totally superfluous. Friday, May the 3rd was notable for two reasons. The first being that it was the day of John's infamous Apple meeting where he declared himself to be Jesus. In other news, this was the date that John finally invited Yoko to Kenwood, his home in Surrey. Here they recorded themselves in John's music room and eventually consummated their relationship. On Sunday May the 5th, with Yoko still there and John fully aware that Cynthia was due to return from a short break in Italy, a tense standoff was anticipated. However, upon her arrival, seeing the couple in dressing gowns together in the sunroom, John could only muster a nonchalant, Oh, hi. Although Cynthia immediately fled the scene, Yoko, however, did not stay and Cynthia returned later that evening. Soon after, John and Yoko attended a screening of Stanley Kubrick's 2001 with filmmaker Joe Masso. On May 13th, John instructed Apple to settle all of Yoko's debts. John remained at Kenwood with Cynthia until May 20th, when the latter embarked on a family holiday, 
that John was meant to attend. Instead, he became increasingly detached and didn't even say goodbye when his wife of nearly six years left. While Cynthia was away, Yoko moved her belongings into Kenwood. When the Beatles reconvened at George's bungalow Kinforns on the 27th and 28th of May, Yoko was by John's side as they submitted and or recorded demos of their new songs. She would remain in attendance at all Beatles sessions that involved John from this point onwards. tape cuts again and now it's clear that the PA system has finally been set up. George suggesting rehearsing the break and almost getting the signature riff. George suggests a chord to embellish John's E chord, as was his usual practice. Sadly, we don't hear it before the tape cuts off. A brief snippet of Michael Lindsay Hogg talking about motorbikes. Do you want some sandwiches? Uh, we don't eat these. Paul, do you want some sandwiches? Hang on. Do you want a dry bun? Don't eat that. And now we have an insight into movie production catering 1969 style. Dry buns and sandwiches, fetched most likely by Kevin Harrington. Don't like what? A dry bun, yeah. It's like a rock cake, but it's water or something. If you want some sort of rolls. That's what I want. This sounds like it might be Paul playing John's guitar upside down. George runs through Buddy Holly's Well Alright. Well Alright is a song co-written by Buddy Holly with his bandmates, fellow crickets, Jerry Allison and Joe B. Maudlin. Producer Norman Petty also added his name to the credits in order to profit from record royalties. The song was first recorded on February 12, 1958, but not released until that November. 
The Beatles were avid Holly fans to a man, and his writing style was hugely influential on their early compositions. It's a well-worn story, but it's also a clear indication of the esteem that Holly was held in. The proto-Beatles, the Quarrymen, made their first ever recording, singing Holly's That'll Be The Day in a tiny home studio in 1958. 6.35pm Ten hours after filming commenced it's obvious there's quite a lot of material that isn't captured. Since rehearsals for Don't Let Me Down have drawn to a close, we'll end it here. And that's it. Thanks for listening. Let me know what you think on our Facebook page and our Instagram, all titled Winter of Discontent Pod. Please subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. It really helps other people find us. You can also email on winterofdiscontentpod at gmail.com. Thanks again and goodbye for now. Winter of Discontent.